0: Good morning, everyone. We're continuing this morning in our Easter series that Tim has entitled Jesus Said What? And uh, we're going through the seven sayings of Christ on the cross, which I didn't even realize was a thing. Uh, But there's books written about this, and there are these like seven distinct things that Christ said in various gospels um, that are very instructive. And it's, it's, it's sobering to hear the the final words of a man who had so much to say, um, so many important things to say, um, and certainly not just a man, but a Savior and our God. If you remember last week, uh, Tim talked about the first saying, which was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they have done. And uh, so the, that we're picking that up this morning, just after, we'll be in chapter uh, 23 of Luke, if you want to turn there, and, and I hope that you would. Luke 23, we're going to be in verses 39 through 43. And the context here, like I said, has continued from uh, last week. Christ has been crucified. We're at Golgotha. He's been crucified with two criminals, one to his left and one To his right, and there's a sign that's been posted above the cross that says Jesus, King of the Jews. And we learned from one of the other gospels that it was written in three different languages, and it was it was uh, Christ was crucified kind of along a road, as Tim talked about yesterday. So people would walk to and, and from cities, and this was the Roman design that they would see what happens to people who disregard Roman authority. And so people are walking by him, people are mocking him, the religious rulers are mocking him, uh, and even we hear from Matthew and Mark's Gospels that the criminals that were crucified, both of them, to his left and right, were also mocking him. So before we get into the text, let's, let's uh, pray together again. Our Father, we, we love you, we're grateful for Sunday mornings, we're so thankful for the church what you call the pillar and bulwark of the truth. In a, in a world of so much confusion and hate, it is so nice to be with people who love and enjoying a message that's clear. God, we pray that you administer to us this morning that our hearts would be full of this amazing gospel truth that you sent your Son into the world to save lost sinners. We have an amazing example of that in front of us this morning. Um, Minister to our hearts, God, uh, encourage us, fill us with your spirit, and and may we just celebrate the awesome love of our God this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's stand together in honor of the the Word of God. Again, we're in Luke 23, verse 39 through 42. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And may uh, the author of the word bless uh, his body this morning. You guys can be seated. So our summary this morning, if I'm going to condense it into a simple statement for everyone, is this. And this is on your outline if you're following along. Jesus' power and willingness to save far exceeds what we deserve or expect. The power and willingness to save, Jesus' power and willingness to save, far exceeds what we deserve or expect. Christ was crucified, as has been said here, with two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And we're going to learn a little bit about who these criminals are, although we don't have anything of their background, or why exactly they're there. The Gospels just describe them, depending upon the version you're reading, as as criminals, thieves, um, robbers in one version. And that's kind of all we know. We assume that it was pretty heinous. Their crimes have elevated them to the level owing of uh, crucifixion, which was a... Um, horrible way to go employed by the the roman authorities for religious crimes for crimes against the state um, and for uh, thieves and robbers and here we have christ the sinless christ hanging on a cross between two robbers and one of them calls out again the other gospels it talks about how both of these criminals were railing against christ both of them were mocking christ Luke's gospel shares some details about one of the two, but the first, which we'll call the the impenitent criminal, says he was hanged, he, he railed at him, railed at Christ, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Both of the criminals we'll see this morning are desperate for salvation. They both actually ask for salvation of a type and one it is granted to, and the other, as far as we know, was not. This criminal asked for salvation, but similar to those who, in Christ's ministry, uh, they, they had taken their fill of the bread and the fish, but they really had no interest in Christ, right? They were following him around, not because they saw signs and wonders, as Christ said in one of the Gospels, but because they ate their fill of the loaves and fishes. So this criminal hangs, and he's He's on death's door. He's in agony and he's looking for help. Ostensibly, at least. He says, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And you'll remember that this is also what uh, the rulers and the, the soldiers were mocking him who were standing around the Christ also. He saved others. Let him save himself. And yet, Christ continues to hang, not acting. The criminal was right to believe this, to say, hey, save us. If you're a king, if you're who you say you are, if you have the power to do this, then do something about it. Save us and yourself. But he didn't understand the nature of Christ's kingdom, and he didn't understand the work that Christ came to accomplish, just as the soldiers and the religious leaders didn't. Matthew 26, 53, this is Jesus talking. He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Christ has the authority to do that. Remember, there's a, there's a portion of, of, in the Scriptures where, uh, where the disciples are with Jesus and, and uh, they say that someone's, someone's preaching something contrary and uh, they say, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And, and, and that doesn't happen. The disciples had a long ways to go, right, in, in figuring out what this kingdom that Jesus was bringing actually meant. In John 18:36, says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. They would have been calling down the fire from heaven, right? I would have been jumping off the cross with the legions of angels to destroy the Romans and set up an earthly kingdom, as everyone, or the religious leaders at least, were expecting him to do. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But he says, but my kingdom is not of this world. And so Christ hangs on the cross. Like so many in the day that this criminal was looking for salvation from his circumstances. Painful circumstances of execution. And it it makes sense that someone in such a desperate situation would have such a desperate plea that Christ would save him, come off the cross, use his power, and save him. As it said, there there are no atheists in foxholes, right? That's what we hear. But that doesn't make them Christians. Just because someone is desperate for help does not mean that they understand the gospel or are ready to receive from Christ what he has for them to receive, Now the other criminal pipes up. So the one is saying, save yourself and us. And the other, who was mocking Christ, now says this. But the other rebuked him, verse 40, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Christ, has done nothing wrong. So what changed his tune, I wonder? We don't know. This is, we can only speculate. But we do know from the other Gospels that this thief who ends up repenting was railing against Christ also. He was one of the two criminals who was mocking Jesus, along with the religious leaders, along with the people along the road, along with the soldiers. This thief's voice also joined in in the mockery of Christ on the cross. And yet here, we have him standing up for Christ and actually rebuking this other criminal. So something has changed in his heart. Divine grace has gripped him at some point, and he's changing his tune. You know, was it? Was it? Uh, maybe he overheard Christ's words, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." And he was moved by the compassion of the Lord. And and as his his uh, grace and kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, maybe that's what happened. Maybe the thief was struck by the forgiveness that Christ offered those who were crucifying him. Or maybe he had read in earnest the sign that was above the cross that said, here is Jesus, king of the Jews. And maybe he thinks, maybe this truly is the king of the Jews. Maybe this Jesus who is crucified and dying is actually a king. You remember that when Pilate put that description together on the cross, um, as a mockery, the Jews actually, the religious leaders debated with him and asked him not to write that. No, don't write that. Don't don't say that the, here is the king of the Jews. Say he says he is the king of the Jews. And John, John 19, 21 and 22, when they're putting this together and they're getting ready to crucify Jesus, says, so the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, that what I've written, I've written. And so we have this sign above the suffering lamb that says king of the Jews, and that he actually was. And maybe, maybe the thief takes that to heart, that this is indeed the king of the Jews, so he rebukes the other criminal. He forsakes the common sentiment, and he sides with Jesus. So we're going to, again, if you're following through on your outline, we're going to be examining some of the theology that comes out of this penitent thief, where he's had his eyes of faith opened. Uh, He's not really received instruction as far as we know. He's a thief. He probably lived with thieves. His friends were probably thieves. And, uh, And yet here he comes to die and is confronted with Christ, and the eyes of faith are opened and he says some pretty incredible things in very few words that shows us where his heart is at and also what he believes. The first thing that we see is that the thief believes that future judgment is coming. When he rebukes the other criminal, he says, do you not fear God since you are under the same condemnation? So, I mean, he, he believes that there is a God. Wouldn't make sense to say that if he didn't. And he also is is in in awe that this other thief who's who's, uh, mocking Jesus is not afraid of, uh, uh, of the judgment that is to come. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? You're under the same death penalty as he and I, and here you are in your final moments with the final breaths of your life. You're spending them to mock the Son of God, King Jesus, the King of the Jews, so he believes that there is a future judgment coming and it's coming very soon for these two and he recognizes that as well second he's got a grasp of his own sinfulness says uh, we're you're, you're under the same sentence of condemnation and then he, he takes it a step further and says and we indeed justly He's hanging there on a cross, and he recognizes that this is the just deserts. We are getting what we deserve. We've lived a life of criminality. We've stolen things that are not ours. We've disregarded life. We've disregarded people. We've disregarded personal property. We've disregarded the law. And so what we are receiving now in this crucifixion, this one thief says, is just punishment. He's got an awareness and a grasp of his own sinfulness. Again, we don't know exactly what he did, but robber, thief, criminal are the words that are used to describe him. And according to himself, his own testimony, which if anyone knows what he's done, it's it's him. He says that he and the other criminal are worthy of this torturous capital punishment. He's keenly aware of his own sinfulness. And this relates back to the first, right? That if judgment is coming, judgment's not a problem if you're innocent. But he knows that he's not innocent and he knows that the other criminal is not innocent either. But someone here is innocent and he knows that too. The third point is that he he recognizes That Jesus is innocent. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. So he knows future judgment is coming. He recognizes that he himself is a sinner under a just condemnation. And he recognizes that Jesus is who he said he is and that Jesus is innocent. And this is testified for us numerous places in Scripture, and we won't hit on them. But even Judas, if you remember after Judas betrays Jesus, he says, he confesses that he betrayed innocent blood. And Pilate found no fault in him. And Pilate sends him off to Herod, and Herod sends him back and says, I found no fault in him. And even Pilate's wife, remember it says that that she had a dream about, about Jesus. And so she talks to her husband, and she says, have nothing to do with this just man. Jesus was innocent, and everyone knew it. Even the people who were crucifying him in their heart of hearts knew that he was innocent. He was a just man. The king is innocent, and the the thief, the robber, knows this. This is part of the theology that's exposed in the things that he says. And so far, we're off to a pretty good pretty good start. This is amazing. You know, how often do we hear people on death row just continually, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And here we have a man who's willing to admit his own sinfulness. He's admitting that Christ is who he said he was, and he also is aware of a judgment that's to come. I think Jesus would, would already say, as he said elsewhere, you are not far from the kingdom. But he goes on. Uh, the next point in your outline is the soul lives on. Uh, we know this because he says to Jesus, and I'll we'll just I'll, I'll read uh, forty-two and forty-three. He said, "Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." There's a future fulfillment. There is something more after death. And he said to him, "Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me." In paradise, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's a future tense, so the soul lives on. the the The, the criminal that's hanging, the, the penitent thief, is not under any uh, delusion that he's going to survive this thing. He knows that he's being sentenced to death. He knows it's just that he's being sentenced to death. He is going to die, and yet he says, "Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." He believes that the soul lives on. He believes in the afterlife. Further, he believes that there is a heavenly kingdom and that Jesus is its king. It says, remember me when you, Jesus, come into your kingdom. And a kingdom, if it is Jesus' kingdom, that makes Jesus the king. And the thief believes it believes that there is an eternal heavenly kingdom that is coming and that this crucified man next to him is the king of that kingdom. That Jesus is who he claimed to be. That he actually is the king of the Jews. That the sign on the cross, while meant as a mockery to this thief, is actually a billboard of hope. A bright neon sign saying, King of the Jews, King of the Jews, there's hope for you. There is a king of a kingdom, an eternal kingdom that is coming, and hope is found here. And lastly, he believes that Jesus has the authority and the power to save. He says, Lord, king, ruler, authority, Lord, remember me. because Jesus has the authority and the power to save. In spite of his sin, he's kind of pitching the Hail Mary here. In spite of all his sin, if anyone can save him, it's Jesus, the King of the Jews. He has the power and the authority to save. Maybe again here he's remembering what Jesus said to those who were mocking him and crucifying him Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So the thief, an evil man, has the courage to ask Jesus, Remember me. If you can forgive those who are crucifying you, maybe you can also forgive me and remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this is the, this is the penitent criminal's last final request. Re- remember me. It might be a long shot, but it's a shot that he has to take. He's going to die, and his eyes have been opened. He sees Jesus for who he is. He's got some pretty spot-on theological convictions, as we've seen, and so he asks Jesus to remember him. It reminds me of of uh, uh, John and James, the son of sons of Zebedee, when their their mother comes to Jesus and she says. Jesus, remember my boys when you come into your kingdom. And her request was not simply remember me, but grant that one of them would sit on your right hand and one of them would sit on your left hand. And here, uh, the, the criminal's not so bold as to ask something as audacious as that, just, just merely remember me. But it's not just a sentimental request, and I think we understand that. Uh, this is a similar request that uh, Joseph had in, in Egypt. And uh, G- uh, Joseph's in, in jail uh, under false uh, pretense, um, and someone's coming by the jail, and they're upset, and it's, it's, it's the king's cupbearer, and Joseph says, why, why are you upset? What's going on? And the cupbearer says, well, I, 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 the, the pharaoh's had a dream, and I'm supposed to interpret the dream, and I don't know how to interpret dreams. And Joseph says, dreams belong to the Lord. Tell me what the dream is, and I'll interpret it for you. And then Joseph gives the proper interpretation. And as the, as the cupbearer is leaving to go back to the, the king of Egypt, uh, Joseph, you, know, you can imagine him holding onto the bar saying, remember me when this goes well, when the Pharaoh uh, receives this interpretation from you, remember me. Oh, he doesn't want just a thought. He, he wants action, right? For, uh, Joseph would like out of prison. So he asks to be remembered. It's kind of like The star football player, or the the little league kid who's just amazing at at his game at 10 years old or whatever, and we think, hey, remember me? You know, when you're when you're playing for the big leagues and you're raking in millions of dollars, remember me? That's right, Cannon, Bryce, right? It's my retirement plan. Um, Yeah, remember me. It's more than just sentimentality. It actually does it it means something to this criminal. And yet it, it doesn't, uh, as, as we'll see, it means a whole lot more to Jesus than even what this, this criminal is thinking. The criminal is looking for a royal pardon. And if this were me, if this were Jesus, if, 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 this, if Jesus were me rather, this is Kellen Christ speaking, uh, I would think, you were mocking me like ten minutes ago. Right, your voice was mingled with the crowd. Maybe you were spitting on me from the other cross to see if you could, if you can spit uh, all the way across the, the distance. Um, you, you were, you were calling me king of the Jews, not in a hopeful sense, but in a mocking sense. And now that you are suffering in pain and realize that that my mighty angels are not going to descend from heaven to save you, and you realize you're on the brink of death, now all of a sudden you change your story. I would think this is just the liquor of death talking. Forget about it. But not Jesus. Jesus' response As we'll read, uh, it is amazing. It is so much more than what this criminal asked for. And it comes at a a heavy heavy price. Uh, As Tim explained last week, uh, crucifixion, ultimately the end was typically not because of blood loss, but because of asphyxiation. They couldn't breathe. So every word that Jesus says has to be spoken through exhaling, because that's how we speak. He has to push up on the nails. He has to lift up with his arms to get enough breath to then exhale and say these words. These are the final words of the incarnate word. And Jesus starts with his familiar catchphrase, and he he says it one more time. He said this so many times in his earthly ministry, and it's through pain as he lifts himself up from the cross to say these things. We've heard him say, truly, truly, I say to you so many times before, Right? Truly, truly, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom unless they're born again. Whoever accepts, accepts me accepts he who sent me. Truly, I say to you, not the smallest letter of the law will fall away until all has been accomplished. Truly, I say to you, it is good that I go away so that I can send you the advocate and the promising the Holy Spirit. And he says, truly, who the Son sets free is free indeed. And here, one more time, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. So the thief asked to be remembered, just remember me, Lord. And Jesus said, today, you will be with me. You will be with King Jesus The thief isn't sure when this is going to happen. Jesus, whenever you come into your kingdom, whenever that happens, remember me. Jesus says, it will be today. Today. And the thief wants in on a kingdom. Let let me sweep the streets in your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly, truly. He is able to do far more and abundantly anything that we can think or ask. Amazing. There are a few uh, things I'd like us to consider here as implications for this passage. Uh, One is there's a lot here that we can learn, even though this is short and not overly articulate. But there's a lot that we can learn about the truth of the afterlife. And that's your first point in the next section on your outline. The truth about the afterlife. What did Jesus believe about the afterlife? I think that's a good place to go. Where do we go when we die? How's that for a mystery? Everyone wants to know the answer to that question. Where do we go when we die? Is that the end? Is it over? Jesus didn't think so. I think he would know. There's a lot of different ideas about how uh, life and death works. You know, there's traditions that teach about reincarnation. You know, depending upon how you performed in this life, you'll die and then come back as a squirrel or an elephant or a worm. Jesus clearly didn't believe that. There's also ideas about, you know, what, what happens when when we die? Where does our soul go? Is there is there a soul sleep? Is it like falling asleep at night and then we wake up in the morning and even though eight hours has elapsed, it feels like nothing. And I think there's room for curiosity and some some interesting discussions. We can get creative in our in our own. Inability to understand the deep things of God that He hasn't revealed to us, right? And Christ actually talked more about hell in the Gospels than He did heaven, so we've got some some empty spaces to fill in. But this is very instructive, I think. There are things in here that we can know that help us to know what is not true. And we think about where where even is heaven? Like, can I take a rocket ship to heaven? Like, heaven is a place. It actually exists is there any risk or possibility of the the curiosity mars ro- ro- rover that's driving around on mars right now like happening upon heaven i don't i don't think it works that way uh, when john was exiled on the island of patmos it said that an, a door was opened to him into heaven so like is the entryway to heaven over in greece somewhere brian i don't know have you seen it i don't think so brian spent time in greece um And Jesus taught that that the kingdom of heaven is near, that it's very near. I'm like, where is this place, right? I think that, I, I, I don't think it's light years away. I don't think it works that way. There's probably some other dimension, right, that we don't have access to. But what we do know here is that Jesus says to this criminal that today you will be with me in paradise, today, today. That to be, we learn in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if you are dead, I don't think that your soul is sleeping somewhere, you are with the Lord. If if you are not alive in the flesh, you are alive in the spirit and you are before the Lord if your faith is in him. Likewise, the idea of, of, of purgatory, I think this completely does away with. The idea of purgatory is that when you die, we have to be prepared for heaven. So when you die, you're, you're, you're imperfect. You've got uh, mortal sins uh, that, yes, have been taken on, taken, uh, dealt with on the cross by Christ, but you've got these other sort of lesser sins that have to be kind of burned away. So you go to purgatory for a time— to be perfected and be ready for heaven because after all, heaven is a perfect place and nothing imperfect or sinful can enter into heaven. So you need a little bit of time to clean up. And I think if anyone needed that clean up time, it's this guy. He spends maybe an hour or two with Christ before he dies after a life of criminality, of, 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 of stealing and breaking the law. And yet Christ says, today you will be with me in paradise purgatory i won't go all into it but it's not paradise it's a place of 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 refining and punishment but the criminal is promised that today you will be with me in paradise so there is no purgatory there's no soul sleep there's no reincarnation there's no annihilation when you die it is it is not over that is not what jesus taught very emphatically, Jesus is super convinced that when you die, it is not over. So we don't know where it is. We don't know how it works. We don't know exactly, you know, heaven versus the third heaven, like Paul talks about right, or paradise. Um, I don't know how to slice all that up. I don't know if those are all synonyms for heaven, which is all the same thing. We're not getting into that this morning anyways. But the point is, there is a paradise, and it comes immediately when you die, if you are perfect, or more accurately, if you have been made perfect. So how do we get there? If this place actually exists, and we probably can't take a rocket ship there, how do we get there? How did, this, how did, how did it come to be that this sinner who's crucified for his sins is told by the king of the Jews, that today you will be with me in paradise. It's it's amazing to think about and to look into all the things that the criminal did not do. The criminal did not, as far as we know, pray a sinner's prayer. He didn't go to a revival meeting. He didn't, with every eye closed and every head bowed, lift his hand in in a group of people. He wasn't even baptized And yet he goes to heaven. He's with them, with Jesus today. It's, it's, it's amazing what he did not do. And I wonder how many, how many worthless rites we prescribe and perform for Christ, when, rea- if our heart is in the wrong place, are actually against Christ. I'm reminded of the, the verse from Rock of Ages. It says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That there's, there's a single hope. And to be sure, Christ calls us to a certain form of living. He calls us to baptism, absolutely. He calls us to living righteous lives, absolutely. But all of those things are fruit of a conversion and not the causal action of that conversion. And we can learn that from the thief here as well. You remember the teaching that Jesus gave in in Matthew 7, um, when he's talking about the judgment, and he says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Didn't we do all this stuff? weren't we baptized? And then I will declare to them, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And even in knowing Christ, we can't boast about that, right? We can't, the the thief only knew him for a couple hours, so it doesn't even matter how long you knew him. But do you know him? That is the key to getting into heaven. If we take any other boasts, any other actions on our part, we rob the cross of its power and we rob Christ of the glory that is due his name. Second, hope is for the living. Hope is for the living. Our predicament, whether we completely recognize it or not, is just as desperate as the criminal on the cross. We're all terminal. Everyone in this room is going to die. Everyone. And it might not be on a cross. You might not be under the, you know, under the sentence of, of death. You're not going to be executed. But you're going to die. Like whether it's today or in 50 years, it's going to happen. And we're all desperate because we are all also sinners. You may not have stolen anything. You may not be on the run from the law. But you too are a sinner. We're all terminal sinners. And nobody knows how much time they have. We can all think about someone who we got a phone call in the morning, sometime in the day, right? So-and-so just died. What? And that doesn't only happen to other people. That might happen to you. Ecclesiastes 9:4 says, "But he who is joined with the living has hope." For a living dog is better than a dead lion. I love that one. We were talking about that with a youth a couple a month ago. Um, a lion is a great thing, but a dead lion, meh. Like, I, I have more to fear of a dog than I do a dead lion. So the living have hope. Hope is for the living. The thief shows us that there's hope for the living. But again, we don't know how long we have to live, so take advantage of that hope now. Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. It's great that this thief was saved. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure, though, he was full of regret at the same time that was mingled with this joy of knowing the Savior, but realizing I've been saved now, this actually is the king of the Jews. What have I done with my life? Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't wait until you have all the answers figured out. Don't wait until all your kids have moved out of the house. Don't wait until you've settled at the new job. Don't wait until you've chased down that last pleasure. Just one more hit, whatever it is. Don't wait until all your current hopes falter. Don't wait for the terminal diagnosis. Again, you're already terminal. Don't wait for a sign or a wonder from God, a sign in the sky. The wonder and the miracle will be your believing. Don't wait. This is the only instance in Scripture, as far as, as I'm aware, uh, of a deathbed confession or a deathbed uh, transformation, a deathbed, a repentance, and conversion. There's a saying, I don't know who it's attributed to, um, but I found it lots of places, just never cited. It says, one was saved upon the cross that none might despair. Hallelujah. Like the, 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 the criminal on the cross says, it does not matter how bad you have been, and it's easy for us to say that, like we can dress this, we can dress this criminal up to be a Robin Hood, right? Like, yeah, he was probably just a victim of the system, and he probably gave what he stole to people who needed it. And he, yeah, he was kind of rough around the edges, but probably not all that bad of a guy, right? I don't think so. Like this, this could, this man could have killed people. He was not being crucified for being a nice guy. We can dress him up, and we ought not to. And it's good for us to recognize that this guy who's lived an entire life of sin in the last moment still has hope. So it does not matter what you have done, there is still hope. Hope is for the living. Better to be a living dog than a dead lion. One was saved upon the cross that none might despair, and only one that none might presume. Again, you don't know how long you have. Don't presume upon the last-minute grace of God. There are people, people in this room who will not have the benefit of a deathbed in the first place. Gone. Don't presume upon a last-minute conversion. And lastly, point three here, uh, we learn about the personal nature of the atonement, the personal nature of the atonement. Jesus says to the criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. And the reason why this is so important is because sin, though on the one hand does affect us all equally as children of Adam, that there's a genetic sense in which we are all sinners. There's also a very specific and pointed sense in which I am a sinner because of things that I have done and do do. The atonement has to be personal, but because the offense is personal. It's not sin in general that cuts you off from God necessarily. It's your sin. It's what you did yesterday. Your sin cuts you off. It's true that Christ came into the world to save sinners, but we, like Paul, have to recognize that we are the chief among them, personally. The net goes out broad, but it drags in individual fishes. Matthew twenty twenty eight says, "The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many." The net goes out broadly, and then Galatians twenty tw- uh, I'm sorry, Galatians two twenty says, "I have been crucified with Christ." Paul writing, "It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life that I now live." In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The atonement is very personal. I think about Christ on the cross here. He's burdening the the sin of of everyone everyone who would believe in him who would ever live. From the beginning of time, from Adam all the way down to this very moment in time, and however long he continues to tarry, right? He's burdening all of that in the the span of six hours. And this criminal, who again, an hour before, was taunting him and mocking him, asks for forgiveness, and Christ takes the moment. He's shouldering the burden of every sinner that would ever live, and he takes a moment to address this sinner, Today you will be with me in paradise. Imagine like a a chef in a kitchen, right? And there's tickets on the little tree, and he's pulling them off, and he's whipping stuff up, and he's throwing it under the heater, and he's making all these meals, right? But then so Christ, Christ is accomplishing that for everyone. The net is going out broad, but he's also carrying the plate to the table and saying, Eddie, eat. Christ is not only the chef, he's also the waiter and serving people generally, but serving people very specifically at the same time. And this one thief who doesn't deserve it whatsoever receives a promise of paradise today. At Jesus' lowest, he, while shouldering the burden of the, uh, the, the manifold sins of humanity throughout time, labors also to forgive the one that's right before him. Imagine this, and again, this is is like our our tendency to clean this guy up and make him somehow worthy. Imagine this happening to the worst person that you've heard of, right? I'll confess, I I enjoy true crime podcasts. I have to turn it off when my wife walks in the room because it's pretty brutal sometimes, right? But imagine like a Jeffrey Dahmer, right? Some serial killer receiving this from Christ. Today you will be with me in paradise. In fact, Jeffrey Dahmer is an interesting case. I don't know how much you know about him, um, but I'll read this. Who? This is from a, a guy who gave Jeffrey Dahmer's uh, funeral. His name is Roy Ratcliffe, and he was actually involved with Dahmer while he was in prison. Um, Dahmer became interested in Christ. And uh, his, at his funeral, uh, this was quoted. He called him Jeff instead of Jeffrey. He, he knew him. He um, said, so Jeff confessed to me his great remorse for his crimes. He wished he could do something for the families of his victims to make it right, but there was nothing that he could do. He turned to God because there was no one else to turn to, but he showed great courage in his daring to ask the question, Is heaven for me too? I think many people are resentful of him for even asking that question. But he dared to ask, and he dared to believe the answer. Incredible. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, the song that we sing. One of the verses, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. I remember reading more about, about Dahmer. There's a college professor of some sort said, you know, if, if Jeffrey Dahmer is in heaven, I do not want to go. But we're all Jeffrey Dahmer. We all need that grace. Alexander McLaren thought this was helpful. Said, All sin separates from God. But the thing that makes the separation permanent is not the sin, but the ignorance of the sin. Not not transgression shuts a man out from mercy. I mean, you you have to transgress in order to need mercy in the first place, right? Transgression, which belongs to us all, makes us subjects for the mercy. But it is pride, self-righteousness, trust in ourselves, which bars the gates of mercy on mankind. And the men that are condemned are condemned not only because they have transgressed the commandments of God, but... And this is a quote from Scripture. This is the judgment that light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And here we have him exiting the world with a sinner that he came to save. He came into the world to save sinners, and he left it accompanied by a saved criminal, the first trophy of his redeeming blood. A.W. Pink. I'm going to close us with Isaiah 51, verse 3. As we consider the change that Christ creates in our hearts, the forgiveness that we enjoy at his expense, Isaiah 51, 3 says, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song.